Disclaimer. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the New American Magazine. They're submitted for your entertainment and consideration. You should consult your doctor before considering expending too much strenuous energy on these controversial subjects. If you don't have medical authorization, consider this invitation as your permission slip for independent thought. This is Under the Iceberg, hosted by Daniel Natal, co-hosted by investigative researcher Jenny Silcox and publisher of the New American Magazine, Dennis Barrett. The panel is also pleased to include the mysterious Sid. Tonight's conspiracy is the HARP program. Chapter 1. The Premise. Charles Wilson, a Scottish physicist, was the first man to create what is now called a cloud chamber. He was studying meteorology at Ben Nevis, Scotland in 1894 when he became fascinated with an inverted rainbow effect in the clouds. Trying to study this phenomenon further in his lab, he set out to create a cloud machine in a vacuum chamber. Up until then, it was assumed that clouds were the result of dust particles in the air upon which water droplets accumulated. But Wilson was perplexed. There were no dust particles in his vacuum chamber, yet clouds were forming. It was then that he discovered that what's actually happening is that water vapor is trapped in electromagnetic wefts, and that this is what forms clouds. So our sky is awash with a whirling phantasmagoria of energy that is invisible to us, but is nevertheless there. Clouds are only their visible manifestation, showing the footprints of the electromagnetic fields underneath. Ever since this discovery, which netted Wilson the Nobel Prize in 1927, by the way, governments have been fascinated by the possibility of manipulating weather with recourse to shooting beams of energy into the ionosphere. One of these initiatives is the HARP program in Alaska. That stands for High Frequency Active Oral Research Program. It's jointly funded by DARPA, the U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy, and the University of Alaska Fairbanks. It officially began in 1990, with U.S. Senator Ted Stevens championing the facility in his home state. While the official story is that the program is exploratory in nature, there have been those who have noticed that weaponized weather has usually been called into action to create droughts in countries to soften them up prior to U.S. invasions. With that as our groundwork, Ginny, did you want to get us started? I can speak to that, but it's kind of premature because the foundation of HARP was actually based on the Bernard Eastland patents. And Eastland was um, working for Arco Energy at the time. They had 23 million cubic feet of natural gas discovered in a field in Alaska by Kokona. And uh, Eastland was given the task of finding a way to sell that gas to some government entity um, in situ because they, they it was such a large gas field they wanted to find a way to use it right in place and rather than trying to ship all that natural gas through a pipeline out to tankers or whatever they uh, they first threw it out to a bunch of scientists to see whether or not somebody could come up with a profitable way of u- utilizing it right in place and Eastland won the day with three patents which basic are based on Tesla technology. And um, basically, uh, his initial intentions were quite honorable. Uh, he had various, I've got the abstract here. It's just a really quick um, summary. But it was basically using the ionospheric heater, which is, um, we can get into a little bit more detail on how it does what it does, but it's beaming microwave radiation to a 
given level of the ionosphere, there are several levels, and it's beaming it to a certain focal length and creating a plasma dome, which then can be manipulated by various techniques to um, change where the jet, the jet stream is flowing or to dry out um, wall clouds for tornadoes or to mobilize weather fronts. Yeah, interesting. I mean, that just sounds like it's building initially in its initial conception off of, I mean, from the 1910s and 20s when they were doing cloud right. seeding and, and yes. learning for the first time how they could manipulate like weather patterns. So what does this, my, my question here is um, when they did auto-tune, it was kind of the same thing. They were exploring for oil and they were kind right. of sending frequencies through the earth. And then yes. somebody repurposed this in, in popular music by, you know, and we know it as auto-tune, but it was originally for exploratory, you know, initiatives for oil. And so how right. exactly are they, like by shooting beams up into the ionosphere, how is that, how does that get you closer to, you know, the resonant frequencies that are related to the oil underneath the earth? Well, actually it does, it can. Because they can control what they do is they use a heating frequency and some of the early research I have on forming that dome, uh, they were basically using the D region of the ionosphere and they were heating it with a two kilohertz uh, pulse and getting it to uh, an almost or a plasma state and the, the temperature within that dome would have been around 5700 degrees and that bubble of hot ionosphere would actually create a mirror because the boundary conditions beyond it are so cold up there in the upper atmosphere that it actually formed a mirror, sort of like a, an upside down stainless steel bowl. And then they could take a second frequency and bounce it off the interior of the bowl and get it to come down just about anywhere on earth. They could make it around the earth in two or three hops. And uh, so they could do that and send a microwave beam down and then measure reflections you keep in mind the microwave beam could be pulsed so they could send an active pulse down and then wait for a reflection in phase to come back up to the bowl and then be transmitted back to the receiver i'm going to to bring dennis in for a second but i just wanted to play a clip um because i'm wondering if this has to do with the hums that people all around the world have been hearing and uh let me play it here just bear with me one second at his home in the rainforest along Canada's Pacific coast, Glenn McPherson researches something that science says shouldn't exist. But it does for him. He hears it every night. When I first moved here on my first uh, night after the house quieted down, I was actually taken aback at how loud the hum was. The worldwide hum is usually described as a low-pitched rumble, like a car or truck engine idling nearby, with electronics pulsing. This is a simulation. Uh, we'll be finding out soon enough whether or not the world hum is as prevalent in Asia as it is in the English-speaking world. Now, after four years, his worldwide hum and database project has found nearly 13,000 people on five continents who've emailed to say they're hearing something. The number's too large, McPherson says, to dismiss as hysteria, delusion, or belief in the supernatural. Given that people arrive at this um, independently, and now looking at the hum map and looking at the distribution of, of um, the geographic distribution and the distribution in age and gender, what these people are reporting is, um, is something that is uh, certainly uh, real for them. 
Okay, so Dennis, what are your preliminary impressions on what's happening, the technology and the possible implications uh, terrestrially for people all over the world who, who may or may not be hearing something related to, to HARP? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons for hums. Um, and I'll give you an example. I actually know of a hum. Um, I've spent a lot of time listening to it, and uh, it may to people in that area seem you know, potentially mysterious. I haven't gone and checked with anyone, but, you know, I've, I've listened to this hum in this particular area and I actually know exactly what's causing it. Uh, but you can't necessarily see it from a lot of the places where you're going to hear this thing from because it's obscured by the landscape. But there is a place where I, I know of specifically and I've gone and there's a 1000 foot tall transmission tower there for a television station. And when the atmospheric winds are uh, up to or beyond 15 miles per hour, that thing sets up a terrific hum uh, that you can hear for miles around. Uh, and it sounds kind of annoying, actually. <laughs> yeah, is that a resonant, uh, a mechanically resonant hum? Oh, yeah, it's definitely resonant. And it's it's very, very constant. This, this whole thing starts to vibrate as the wind <laughs> rips through it. And you can't, if you're, you know, most places this is very heavily forested. You can't see it. You don't think about it because you can't see it. Uh, but you can hear this sound for miles around. And uh, it's, you know, if you're not thinking about what's around you, why it's going to sound awful freaky and, and uh, uh, unusual that this hum is taking place. Um, so, you know, the idea of resonance is I think, you know, Tesla was interested in those things. Other scientists have been interested in those things, and they are very interesting. Um, and, you know, just to go back to what Ginny said about the Eastland patents, um, you know, the one in particular that I'm looking at <clears throat> that I've read before, you know, it, it's pretty darn interesting, uh, if only from a you know, from a science and science fiction aspect, because a lot of times when they talk about the various ways in which a patent can be potentially useful to future technologies, they're, they're really projecting the lines as to where things can go. You know, and one of the things that he wrote, now I'm going to read this directly from the patent. This is an Eastland patent from 1985. Quote, this invention has a phenomenal variety of possible ramifications and future potential, excuse me, potential future developments. As alluded to earlier, missile or aircraft destruction, deflection, or confusion could result, particularly when relativistic particles are employed. Also, large regions of the atmosphere could be lifted to high altitude so that missiles encounter unexpected and unplanned drag forces with resultant destruction or deflection of the same. And it goes on and on and on. I'm not reading that from some kind of fringe place. That's actually the text of the patent, the patent being US 4686605A, uh, inventor Bernard J. Eastland, 1985, uh, assigned to Atlantic Richfield Company, and currently held by BAE Systems Information and Electronic Systems Integration, Inc. Yeah, well, that that's not even that far out either. I mean, the claim that that is making, I mean, if you read, just to go back to Nikola Tesla, um, he was talking about creating a force field that created an EMP effect. So anything that traveled inside of that dome would just be, you know, the, the circuits would just fry. And so, I mean, that was back like in, you know, 1908 that he was he was talking about that kind of stuff. So, so his idea of just manipulating the ionosphere to create more drag on missiles to, you know, set them off course. I mean, that's not really, you know, that that far out, you know. Sid, do you have any uh, any take on all this? Um, I have a completely different view of it. I mean, I'm not fully versed in the technical aspects of it like Ginny is and uh, Dennis. But my view of it is if they have this technology, they can use it to reinforce their propaganda. I mean, think about it, right? If let's say they're trying to control people's habits and things like and their mind 
they're trying to push narratives where they can gain more control over people's lives, how they work, how they eat, how they sleep, right? And it's all under the guise of climate control. Everything's getting worse, weather's getting worse. Well, if they have this technology, then they can just make the weather however they want. And people don't That's really uh, people don't really do anything unless they see something, feel something, or hear something. Most most time, because people are visual, they won't do something unless they actually see with their own eyes. If they see the weather's the weather is getting worse, then they'll say, "Okay, maybe it's real." which then they'll start following. But yeah, you make a really excellent point that once they got the technology for it, you know, once you you get that hammer, everything becomes a nail. So only exactly. after they, they had the ability to manipulate the weather did, did they suddenly find a way to monetize that. I'm also worried about the how this is impacting the natural cycle of things, like how the Earth would naturally be. Like, it's probably throwing everything off from what I understand. Well, that's what got me interested in the first place because oh. 12 to well, let me see i have to think back when about 13 years ago i guess uh i read an article on them using harp to, to pulse the auroral electrojet and that really disturbed me because they were doing this uh adding energy and using diff various different frequencies of pulsation to a very strong uh, arctic uh electrojet which is the electrical jet stream that runs around the, each pole there is a, an Arctic and an Antarctic um, electrojet. And, and basically what it is is ionized particles that are reacting to the passage of the solar wind by the poles of the planet. And they were starting to um, add harp energy to the electrojet. And that really alarmed me because it was almost like they were flashing a signal to a faraway galaxy by using our planet because – they were literally flashing the aurora. They were creating their own auroras and then adding to the existing aurora. That's a brilliant take. Uh, Dennis, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I saw that research too. And um, this is one of many things that they're doing. I don't know how much it's active any longer. I know they've transitioned it from the uh, U.S. military uh, in 2015 to the University of Alaska, uh, which I think is an interesting thing that to me kind of says that uh, the military's moved on to some other technologies and isn't particularly interested in this one any longer. Um, <clears throat> you know, and I also think, you know, maybe that, you know, HARP is sort of the, uh, you know, it's the most powerful installation of its kind currently. And it probably shows a way forward if someone wanted to invest an awful lot of money in some of the nefarious things you might be able to do with that technology or good things you might be able to do with that technology. But in its current iteration, at it puts out 3.6 megawatts, and I'm not really convinced. Uh, I would, uh, don't you mean gigawatts? Well, you know, I found it was 3.6 megawatts from what I was reading, but maybe it that, is gigawatts. That's older. Yeah, that's older. So they upgraded yeah. it. But yeah. you know, even if we go to gigawatts, a single lightning strike is about a terawatt, and there are 20 million of those things every year in the U.S. alone. Uh, but you have to realize, too, Dennis, that they're using resonance factors. They are using resonance um, factors, yeah, they, and, and and those resonance factors actually may imp, may impact uh, lightning strikes actually as well. I'm sure they but could. Yes, yeah. I think there's a heck of a lot more natural energies taking place, and that's why I'm not as as worried about it, especially because it's been operating for a very long time, and I'm not sure it's actually operating much any longer. Do we have do you, do any of you know uh, whether or not it's gotten enough funding from the university system to actually continue? Uh, it's got dark funding, and it also has a companion research site right near it, uh, the HIPAA facility. 
What I worry about is them warehousing it at a university, and that might not be because they lost interest, but it might be a way to avoid Freedom of Information Act documents, kind of like a criminal going to his lawyer, knowing that the lawyer can't divulge anything, you know, because of his confidentiality agreement. Um, and, the, and the law will respect that. So if they outsource it, you, you've seen this with uh, with tech companies, where a lot of the tech companies are really just sock puppets for, for DARPA, for the government, and they masquerade as a private company, but they're actually not. It's just a way to avoid accountability and, and to evade a paper trail and say, oh, you can't get these documents because, look, this private institution has these, do-, you know. And uh, so so who knows, like, wh- what what is actually happening because of that nexus, you know, that people call the military industrial complex, where they're just playing, you know, high the football, you know. Um, so, but but Dennis may may also be right as well. You know, who knows? You know. Um, but I, well, I, I do have I have I do have some research that indicates that they farmed out a lot of the technology that they had developed at Harp to the next grad system. Interesting. So, what's weather the, control? I wanted to touch on on the thing too that Sid said regarding like one of the things that people have noticed. The Russians, I think, were the first to point this out was the the alteration of Schumann resonance, right? So Tesla, Nikola Tesla, and everything keeps leading back to him. Um, he noticed that the, that the Earth has a resonating frequency itself, and it was 7.83 later point eight three hertz. Yeah, and it was later corroborated by Schumann, and because Schumann was in academia, they gave him the credit for it, even though Tesla was the actual one to to, to notice this. I just wanted to take a second to play for the audience uh, Schumann resonance and what it sounds like, what the natural resonant frequency of the Earth is supposed to be. Okay, that was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was Schumann resonance. Um, it's and, below the range of human hearing. And but but the Russians have have been noticing, you know, and and other people now have corroborated that it's been going crazy. And it may be due to natural things. It may be, you know, I mean, we've shifted positions in the galaxy, you know, vis-a-vis the center of the of the galaxy, the sidereal center, um, and that might be affecting it. Solar activity might be affecting it. You know, so who knows? Maybe Dennis is right. Maybe it's not powerful enough to have these effects. And there's external things, and we have a we have a bias um, to think any change must think be we've human. Explored change. the power really yet? I mean, so, I don't think we've even approached it because I don't know if you have you seen the Eastland presentations on gravity waves? No, no. Well, uh, Eastland had a PowerPoint presentation actually, which I I could furnish to you guys if you want it on how um, collapsing the dome. And you can you can build and collapse that dome, at the the hot plasma dome, at will, uh, according to whatever frequency you want. But generally, they are pretty slow and low frequencies. They're using ELF, which is the specialty of the HARP system. Um, the one at Tromso does the high frequency research, but the one at Gakona does the low frequency, the uh, ELF and VLF uh, research. And and Eastland's presentation. described how gravity waves could be created by collapsing the dome and then building it up and collapsing it and building it and collapsing it. And, and that is a way of mobilizing earthquake faults. Wow. So quick question to Jenny, what is the full potential of it by current standards that we know of? What's the full potential of it? Are you speaking about power, Sid? Uh, I'm speaking more about where the effects it can do possibly. Um, well, there are quite, there's quite a list, actually. And one of the things that I've been doing for many years 
over a decade is uh, looking at modulation, VLF and ELF modulation of clouds, clouds that are parts of weather systems. It's for them, it's unfortunate that we can actually see the modulation because it can, it's usually going to affect the water vapor and you can actually see large areas throughout the entire globe that have a harmonic function happening. And it's not always just a, a drift or a pressure function it's a rippling in the clouds that shows that external energy is being applied. And so that can act like a hash or a chop that could take the power out of a weather system or deflect the jet stream to the point where it can cause a drought. To, uh, and in fact, I think our Western drought has been a part of a weather war. Chapter two, speculation. When you mentioned possibly being in a weather war where they're experiencing unprecedented droughts out west and everything, um, the Business Insider had an article entitled, China is massively expanding its weather modification program, saying it will be able to cover half the country in artificial rain and snow by 2025. So China is openly kind of, you know, dabbling in the same technology. So you may be right. I mean, there may be other state actors who are engaging in hijinks. Uh, I believe that China is uh, experiencing horrible floods. And the, the Three Gorges Dam is about ready to break. And the main growing area is, is down below that dam, their main breadbasket. And that dam is about to fail because they've had so much rain. And then on the other hand, the Western drought has killed so many crops. You know, so I, I think this is kind of a stalemate weather war. Or there, something like that. There was also a report, it says, a Security Council report circulating in Russia was uh, reported on recently while discussing the tragic death of Minister Zinchiev. This transcript sees Security Council members reviewing a classified uh, at the highest level of special importance dossier prepared by the General Directorate of the General Staff of the Armed Forces, the very limited portion of which uh, permitted to be openly discussed among various ministries is sending shockwaves through the Kremlin this morning because of an uncensored quote by the GRU military intelligence dossier attributed to Deputy Defense Defense Minister Tatiana Shestsova, who exclaimed, what kind of new harp hell is this? Anyway, it, it's just going on. Uh, but but anyway, so they mentioned, um, you know, possible uh, harp manipulation in the Arctic Circle. And, uh, you know, and, and they were kind of talking about this. And this was sotto voce. This was, you know, not meant for public consumption. This was like, a you know, military people like talking amongst themselves and it kind of leaked out. So I, I found that interesting as well, that Russia has, uh, you know, su suggestions that, that, you know, this technology might be weaponized. Uh, I have a uh, thermograph of the atmosphere heating right above the island of Honshu, right before the Japanese earthquake in 2011. And no one could explain that atmospheric heating, except if you looked at HARP and HARP activity at the same time, you can see that HARP was really fired up at that time. And we have no way of knowing whether it was aimed at anything particularly over Japan. But the Japanese minister a week prior to that earthquake said that they were going to be attacked by an earthquake weapon because they had gone against the U.S. and had struck a deal with China on trade. Interesting. Dennis, do you have any uh, input on that? Well, you know, I, you know, I hear a lot of those things and I just have never seen enough correlation with actual information to be persuaded that any of those things are happening. On the other I, hand, I have a thermograph and it was atmospheric heating. And I also have sure. a whole bunch of other stuff that, that shows uh, earthquake fault mobilization using um, ELF. Okay. So, you know, I'd love to look at those things, but I remain skeptical that there's enough power being released and, and utilized to actually accomplish those things. 
at the moment with what we know, which is the caveat that I would say, because I think with a lot of these technologies, we don't know a lot about what's actually happening in the secret sphere. Um, as far as weather modification goes, I think that's a place where we need to be really concerned uh, because there are a lot of actors in the weather modification, uh, if you want to call it market, and they're not all, they're not all government actors either. Uh, they're private sector actors. And there's a company called Medio Systems, for instance, that all the way back in 2011 was installing weather modification uh, systems in the Middle East. And uh, Live Science covered that, uh, LiveScience.com. And, uh, you know, they put up a, a, a graphic that Medio provided, apparently, that's it's credited to source Medio Systems. And it's discrediting traditional methods of weather modification, which they call cloud seeding, which I think everyone's probably heard of, uh, with the new method that Medio Systems is building called uh, ion generation. Uh, charged particles attached to condensation nuclei in clouds or water droplets form, et cetera, et cetera. This is text from their, from their graphic. And I think this is just one of many efforts, both governmental efforts and private industry efforts uh, to mess with weather. And that's, uh, you know, that's troubling. I think when you start changing weather patterns or trying to impact weather patterns, which may be very attractive if you're a desert country uh, or if you're a desert region, you may be very interested in seeing if you can't generate some more rainfall. Uh, but what are the what are the impacts of that on on the global climate system? That that I think is a much more important question than the you know nebulous concerns about climate change that get everybody worked up at the United Nations, for instance. No, that's that's a, just a hype anyway. Well, that's a great insight. I mean, he didn't really disagree with you, Jenny. Um, in in a sense, he he just painted a more complex, dynamic hellscape of, of an image of well, state actors plus corporations. <laughs> I do have something to add to the secret sphere of things, and that is an accident that occurred in 2012 to me when I was out looking around at uh, HARP technology, and, and something happened where – it's kind of a long story, and I won't burden us with it, but uh, there, there was a reason I was looking for HARP calibration programs and instrumentation, and I happened upon a 29, megahertz, uh, 29 megabyte um, – PowerPoint presentation that's, uh, I think, 729 slides by the Digisond, uh, the HERO, uh, or GYRO, I don't know how you would say it. It's the Global Interferometry uh, Radio Observatory, and it's a worldwide program of calibration instruments for a huge ionospheric heater program. And we know there are over 102 of them around the world, and, and I would imagine that China is probably um, trying to at least uh, go beyond the strength of HARP, trying to build bigger and better ionospheric heaters for, for the many purposes that they exist. But in 729 PowerPoint slides, the second slide says, not for public release. Mm -hmm. And some grad student must have really gotten in trouble for putting that on the web, but I was able to download it. And I went back a day later and it was gone. And it was from the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And it was a whole description of the uh, Global Ionospheric Radio Observatory program and their projections for the future in installations. And it is a worldwide program. There had to be probably around 100 calibration sites. Yeah, um, it sounds like NATO. Geared. 
Like you wonder, I mean, like NATO, especially you look at the the organization um, for, say, COVID as an example, and how there was this unanimity, you know, that wouldn't happen in an, in a natural organic setting. You know, um, you know, people generally don't tend to behave in exactly the same ways in all these different countries simultaneously with the exact same talking points and building back better, the exact same phrases and, and everything else. Um so, Sid, I wanted to, to ask you, I wanted to pull you into this because just to return to, to your concerns about uh, how, how certain technologies, we might be getting ahead of ourselves and we get all excited because we learn, we get a new toy and we start to manipulate things and we don't really understand how dynamic the, the Earth system is around us. I was reading a book called Robes by Penny Kelly and she, she talks about something interesting. Um, she talks about how trees are electromagnetic and that trees have a consciousness and that trees can manipulate electromagnetic energy like like they interact with the the positive and negatively charged portions of the sky so if trees get thirsty they actually have the ability to to influence the way that the the weather patterns operate and when we chop down trees we're actually messing up i mean trees are basically like natural like cell towers in, in a sense and so she said that not only is the air negatively and positively charged but the land is negatively and positively charged and so when you when you destroy trees you're actually going to mess up the weather patterns as we saw like in the 1930s, you know, with the Dust Bowl. We, we cleared all these forests out. We wanted to plant grain. And then all of a sudden we got these massive dust storms and, and this this ripple effect, this domino effect. So what, what do you have any, any thoughts along this line, Sid? I mean, when you mess with anything in nature, there's a cycle to it. If you mess with anything, it's, it's just... Ugh, I put, the original way it's supposed to go is if there's a hiccup, it adapts, right? But the problem is humans are messing with it too much. So if they don't, like, every civilization tells you live in balance with nature, live in balance with nature. If you go back to the old ways, they always tell you that, live in balance. Don't kill more freaking deer than you can eat, unless you're going to freaking store it for the winter. Don't harvest more than what you need. But the problem with this technology we're covering right now is that not only is it creating the plasma domes that they're talking about, which would have other ramifications. I'll let Jenny finish on that one. But, I mean, it'll have ramifications not only that, but on people's psyches. Think about it. They're going to slowly mess with the weather more and more, whether they're whether it's a nationalistic point of view, whether it's a giant cabal, whichever one you think. Either way, they're messing with the cycles that have been there for thousands, if not millions of years. So we're going to see less and less food, more and more destruction and chaos, and they're going to slowly whittle down the human race to a few. I saw this really interesting art article because you said that it might manipulate people's psyche. And I wanted to read some of this article to you guys. Could Consciousness All Come Down to the Way Things Vibrate? by Tam Hunt. A resonance theory of consciousness suggests that all matter vibrates and that the tendency for those vibrations to sync up might be a way to answer the so-called hard problem of consciousness. Over the last decade, my colleague, University of California Santa Barbara psychology professor Jonathan Schooler and I have developed what we call a resonance theory of consciousness. We suggest that resonance, another word for synchronized vibrations, is at the heart of not only human consciousness, but also animal consciousness and a physical reality more generally. It sounds like something that hippies might have dreamed up. It's all vibrations, man, but stick with me. All the things in our universe are constantly in motion, vibrating. Even objects that appear to be stationary are in fact vibrating, oscillating, resonating at various frequencies. Resonance is a type of motion characterized by oscillation between two states. And ultimately, all matter is just vibrations of various underlying fields. As such, at every scale, all of nature vibrates. 
Something interesting happens when different vibrating things come together. They will often start after a little while to vibrate together at the same frequency. They sync up, sometimes in ways that can seem mysterious. This is described as the phenomenon of spontaneous self-organization. Mathematician Stephen Strogatz provides various examples from physics, biology, chemistry, and neuroscience to illustrate sync. His term for resonance, in his 2003 book, Sync, How Order Emerges from Chaos in the Universe, Nature, and Daily Life, including, when fireflies of certain species come together in large gatherings, they start flashing in sync in ways that can seem a little mystifying. Lasers are produced when photons of the same power and frequency sync up. The moon's rotation is exactly synced with its orbit around the Earth, such that we always see the same face. Examining resonance leads to potentially deep insights about the nature of consciousness and about the universe more generally. And then as the section, a resonance theory of consciousness. Our resonance theory builds upon the work of Fries and many others with a broader approach that can help to explain not only human and mammalian consciousness, but also consciousness more broadly. Based on the observed behavior of the entities that surround us from electrons to atoms to molecules, to bacteria to mice to rats and so on, we suggest that all things may be viewed as at least a little conscious. This sounds strange at first blush, but panpsychism, the view that all matter has some associated consciousness, is an increasingly accepted position with respect to the nature of consciousness. The panpsychist argues that consciousness did not emerge at some point during evolution. Rather, it's always associated with matter and vice versa. They're two sides of the same coin. But the large majority of the mind associated with the various types of matter in our universe is extremely rudimentary. An electron or an atom, for example, enjoys just a tiny amount of consciousness. But as matter becomes more interconnected and rich, so does the mind, and vice versa, according to this way of thinking. Biological organisms can quickly exchange information through various biophysical pathways, both electrical and electrochemical. Non-biological structure can only exchange information internally using heat-slash-thermal pathways, much slower and far less rich in information in comparison. Living things leverage their speedier information flows into larger-scale consciousness than what would occur in similar-sized things like boulders or piles of sand, for example. There's much greater internal connection and thus far more going on in biological structures than in a boulder or a pile of sand. Under our approach, boulders and piles of sand are quote-unquote mere aggregates, just collections of highly rudimentary conscious entities at the atomic or molecular level only. That's in contrast to what happens in biological life forms where the combinations of these microconscious entities together create a higher level macroconscious entity. For us, this combination process is the hallmark of biological life. The central thesis of our approach is this. The particular linkages that allow for large-scale consciousness like those humans and other mammals enjoy result from a shared resonance among many smaller constituents. The speed of the resonant waves that are present in the limiting factor that determines the size of each conscious entity in each moment. As a particular shared resonance expands to more and more constituents, the new conscious entity that results from this resonance and combination grows larger and more complex. So the shared resonance in a human brain that achieves gamma synchrony, for example, includes a far larger number of neurons and neuronal connections than is the case for beta or theta rhythms alone. So the sentence in there that I liked was about the macro consciousness. When you have a bunch of resonance and you bring, you know, these things together and it creates this larger harmonic field. 
And uh, just like Penny Kelly was talking about with trees, having a certain rudimentary kind of consciousness, you know, that we can't quantify because we're, we're, so, we're such visual creatures and we, we're so solipsistic in so many ways that we don't understand that we're part of a larger consciousness field that is, is based on resonance, according to, to that article. So I, I thought that that was kind of on point with some of the things that uh, Sid was intimating. Well, I, I kind of had a, a converse theory my, uh, that I've crafted through many years of not so much that it's a resonant function, that uh, that actually that it's an interferometric, uh, interferometric, I guess you would say, um, that various energies intersect with each other and peak at a given time. And that could be a life form or that is a spirit inhabiting a being. Interesting. That's a good yeah, I like that that theory. Um, one of the things that I've mentioned before is the book Thinking in Systems. And so Donella Meadows in Thinking in Systems, she talks about how humans think linearly. We tend to think just like Dennis said, you know, if you don't see it, it's in, out of sight, out of mind. You think it doesn't exist because it's invisible to you. And uh, so, so we tend to think in these linear kind of primitive ways. And she said, no, but it's dynamic. There are more variables than you're aware of. So sometimes we mess with things and we screw up the balance of, of nature. And she gave the example of the silk budworm. In Canada, they wanted to get rid of the silk budworm because it was hurting you know, certain uh, genres of trees and they wanted to get rid of it. So they were like, here, let's do pesticides. But all of a sudden there was an explosion of silk budworms after the pesticide. And then they realized it was because the pesticide was killing their natural predators. So with their natural predators, dead, ironically, it allowed, you know, freer reign to the silk budworm. And so because we didn't see the other variable of these other predators and a number of other variables, we just thought there was two variables, uh, silk budworm plus pesticide. And these two variables are, but that's not the way that, that nature works. Nature is a dynamic system. You know, it, it's not linear, it's it's exponential. And um, so, so one of the concerns that I have is as we start to engage in some of these, these programs and stuff, um, especially as Dennis said, you know, with, with uh, not just state actors involved in this, but, you know, uh, corporations and central banks and World Economic Forum, you know, all these NGOs and, and corporations, those are the real uh, dangers because they don't have Freedom of Information Act requirements. They don't have any restraint, you know. So, so if you have somebody with linear thinking and they have this very dangerous toy, it's, it's kind of like a chimp with a machine gun. And, and that's, that's a very, very scary place to, to be, you know sociocultural, deeply ingrained trends that we seem to have as a, as a modern human civilization. And that is to uh, attempt to create what we culturally view as order by reducing complexity in natural systems uh, so that we can more readily control the order that we want to impose on those natural systems. And the more that we do that, we approach uh, what uh, Ray Kurzweil calls and longs for his singularity. One of my favorite people. Yeah, his <laughs> which those of us who are normal would probably consider a catastrophe, uh, but he apparently readily embraces it and hopes for it to come any day now. Um, but when yeah, he's transhuman, happen, isn't he? Absolutely. He, he, he yeah. longs for that. He's written extensively about it. That's because he's um, such a creep as a human. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the problem is we do that in all kinds of systems. We do that everywhere and we can never predict. And we're always surprised by the negative ramifications of those things. And uh, it's because we're not meditating enough. We can't open <laughs> our minds to the other possibilities. Yeah. That's you know, very and, true. And we do this in, in economic systems. I mean, this is the essence of communism, where we want to plan the economy down to the nth degree versus a completely free market system, which allows for uh, 
the dynamism chaos complexity and to allow spontaneous order to arise one thing about uh, communist systems is they completely are devoid of in a true innovation yeah yeah so we are trending in many ways in uh you know to put it bluntly i guess a communist mindset toward oversimplification and an attempt to impose control and those things almost invariably end up in uh terrible catastrophes well, I noticed like 80, that 80 million people dying. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I noticed that with uh, there was a trend, right? Uh, the three examples of this is that you don't have to have top down dictatorial authoritarian order to have a system that is very you know complex and dynamic and that works extremely well, like uh, Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. He's describing a system where you don't have to have state you know, sponsorship, state rulership of the economy, the invisible hand is at work. You know, people are making their own transactions, their own decisions, trillions of them, and no single monarch or, or you know, Politburo has the sophistication to be able to track all of those or to even to understand them. So the system runs on its own. It does. It's a, it's a bottom-up system, not a top-down system. It's bottom-up, and it is decentralized. And so you see the same thing with uh, Darwin. At the same time, so you, so you have Adam Smith in the 1700s. By the 1800s, Darwin is describing natural selection, and it's basically the same premise. It's saying, okay, well, there may may or may not be a god. Darwin actually wanted to be a, a clergyman starting out, so he, he wasn't an atheist, ironically. Um, but Darwin said that certain changes could happen without them being dictated from above. There might be variables from below, and it's a bottom-up system you know, of natural selection. And then you go to republics. It's the same concept. We don't need a king. We can have a decentralized system that is in operation. But these these things, you know, these decentralized systems are they, they conduce to freedom. They conduce to, you know, to, to all these the dynamism opens so many more possibilities that it leads to a much richer system, you know, much more dynamic system. And so you see, just like Dennis said, you see people trying to, to roll back and, and to remove the complexity. And there, there was a, a gentleman named uh, Tainter. I think his name is Joseph Tainter. He's a historian. And he was talking about collapse. And he believes that we're heading toward a late Bronze Age style collapse. And he describes exactly he describes collapse as a a sudden simplification of a complex system. So that scares me because Dennis just said, oh, they're trying to, you know, suddenly simplify, <laughs> you know, and that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing a contraction. They're destroying the well, supply chains. Ask, they're what, destroying what the economy. During, during the process, what is getting sacrificed? When you simplify, you're eliminating, right? Eliminating. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. Now, the thing with uh, elimination and simplification is that you're removing a dynamically complex system from existence and a dynamically complex system is inherently stable and inherently robust so you're artificially imposing fragility on a system and that may work really really well as long as underlying conditions are not changed or do not change but the moment an underlying condition in uh, a situation marked by that type of circumstance where the dynamic complexity has been removed that makes that very much fragile very much prone to epic failure in cases where instabilities that are not predicted occur. Uh, and of course, the, the more you have removal of the complexity, the more likely you're going to have those sorts of instabilities uh, cropping up. So fragility, in a sense, when you do this, starts to become almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. You almost can guarantee the outcome being catastrophe in the end. Um, and we I kind of think of that. it as drift. 
too, because reality may be drifting in a different direction while we're in the process of simplifying. And we're not even noticing that the fundamental reality and that our simplification process is less and less relevant. In simple terms, once upon a time, I wrote an article many years ago about something in economics, and I don't remember what it was, but I, I pointed out that it's very much like, you know, we can go to, uh, you know, one of these simplified systems, or we can use a system where, you know, like in a, in a ship, in shipbuilding, you have waterproof compartments, so that if you have a, a catastrophic collision with your hull, waterproof compartments slow the flooding in the entire hull, whereas you simplify it and get rid of those waterproof compartments because maybe it lightens your vessel, uh, well, now the next time you have a collision with your hull, everything is going to flood and you're going to be doomed. And I think it's useful to think in those in those terms with, with regard to what's happening. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that, too. Um, I always thought of that as well. You know, like a, like like you said, you know, my, my thought was, you know, like a submarine with the airlocks, with the, the valves that you could, you know, you could uh, seal you know, a compartment if, uh, you know, a leak happens and you could save the ship. But if you remove all of those airlocks, if you remove all of those, let's say, borders of countries and you just have one giant system that is all this fully integrated, if something happens in that system, then the whole thing goes down and you can't isolate the, the contagion. You can't isolate the damage. Um, I just wanted to get back to to um, some one of the things you guys are talking about. You mentioned in passing Ray Kurzweil and the uh, the transhumanist, the transhuman movement. I'm narrating an audiobook, as it so happens, um, by by somebody who is a proponent of transhumanism. Ironically, and my wife is like saying, "Why are you reading that?" And and, and I said, "Because it's good for me to see what the other side admits." You know, it's good for me to know when they think that they're speaking to a sympathetic audience, like what they will admit to. And so there, the the book goes through the history of the transhuman movement, and it roots it back to the um, 1930s in Russia with the cosmist movement. And that's where, where they got the, the term cosmonaut, was from this cosmist movement that predates the, the space program. And so they believed in transhumanism, and there was two guys named Fedorov and Choskolsky. And Choskolsky openly said, said that he wanted all humans to be killed and replaced basically by cyborgs, by genetically engineered creatures. And he's and and so the author of the book actually comments. He says that what's about to happen with the singularity is going to be so monumental that it will be experienced by normal people as a mass extinction event. But this is good because it's clearing away people who are merely human to make a way for, for the Nietzschean Superman, for the transhuman, you know, that, that's going to take his place after, you know, this mass extinction event that we're just on the cusp of. You know, so, I mean, these, these people are, are madmen. I have yeah. a feeling he didn't yeah. have a normal marriage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Look, none of these people, and, and they, I mean, the, the, the author who's quoting the Soviet cosmist, who's quoting Ray Kurzweil, is quoting like all of these, you know, these icons of that particular movement. He's all for it. He he sees death yeah, and destruction. Have you ever seen him? <laughs> oh, you're talking about Kurzweil. No, the, the author yeah. of this book is not Kurzweil. Yeah, I've seen Kurzweil. He, he's the guru. At, he's their religious. He's their, their, their uh, clergyman at, uh, at Google. You know, he, he's, he's hailed as this, you know, this, this Messiah. But one of the things that also struck me in, in this book that I'm narrating is he talks about transgenderism and how basically what's happening. And, it, and it's really actually a brilliant insight. He says that we're, we're starting to lose our connection with the earth. We're starting to lose our connection with our exterior environment. Right. And well, we're becoming be because they're intruding on the connection with a bunch of ELF and EMF. 
Well, he, well, he's just it, yeah. That that gets gets even beyond the point I'm I'm making. I'm just saying in terms of you know little kids you know being absorbed by their their cell phone you know or by a tablet yeah, or something. EMF. And yeah, and and so so what he's saying is that these people who were used to from the time they're very little they're used to picking avatars. They're used to picking a, a synthetic identity, an over the counter identity that the video game offers them, right? And so you see the same mindset, the same pathology in the people who want to get cosmetic surgery to you know have bigger boobs or to look like a Barbie doll or in extreme cases, oh, I want to be, you know, Jan. I was born Bill Smith, but I want to be Jan Thompson, you know. And uh, you know, and 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 so how they, they get lost in there and they get trained into thinking that, you know, that that they're part of the game. They're part of a video game, a video game consciousness. And this is part of a larger alienation between you and the external environment, between you and the earth, between you and reality. Right. And as this becomes more defined, you know, you're seeing more of a neurosis you know, that, that is becoming normalized, you know, and, and as it goes apace, these people, um, like in, in the book, it describes the, the transgenders as the first, almost like the, the vanguard, the avant-garde of this larger transhumanist yeah. movement, where you're no longer merely human. Now you're a transhuman. So the transgender thing is just a subset of a larger kind of body modification, inject yourself with graphene oxide, hook yourself up to satellites, be part of the internet of things. And, and at which point you are in the video game and now you can't discern yeah, what is real or what is not. Until they get a virus, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll be selling that as a new vaccine, but um, no, that's very true. I mean, why do you think they're, why do you think it's being blasted everywhere? They're trying to get as many people hooked on as possible with this. Facebook just went down and uh, as, as this was being recorded and uh, Zuckerberg was being sued by investors who were alleging that Facebook was using a billion fake accounts and, uh, you know, like that they had shell uh, accounts, duplicates, their yeah, their traffic. And they were and they were using yeah. that to drive up their, their stock prices to like eight hundred dollars a share at its uh, or whatever. Bot fraud. Yeah, exactly. Whereas <laughs> the, the actual value of that stock would be like a dollar twenty seven if you actually were, you know, Whoa. if you actually were using. So 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 all this wealth was being transferred from the working class over wow. to the, to the tech class because all these pension funds from firefighters, police, police uh, officers, teachers unions, all of their fund managers were buying the stock, hence transferring their wealth from the working class to the, the tech class. Oh. And so now the investor class wow. wants to steal like a that giant money. vacuum cleaner. Yeah. And yeah. so now Zuckerberg mugged the working class and now the Carl Icahn corporate raider investor class is going to mug Zuckerberg. So Zuckerberg <laughs> takes down <laughs> Facebook, you know, and, and excuse me, Russian hackers take down Facebook oh, and yeah. all all that incriminating hackers. evidence just disappears. But the point being, as you're looking at Sims, like fake accounts, fake people, fake, you know, duplicate shells and all these things, people who had, who had left Facebook 20 years ago or, you know, 18 or whenever it started. Oh, it's just like and, a voting and registration. Exactly. And that's my point. That's where I was getting is, is all of a sudden you see elections being, they couldn't find 87,000 people in the Arizona election. 87,000 people. Maybe they couldn't they verify that they were real. Yeah. So so we're, we ha we're, we're segueing into a reality that is being manipulated by Sims. So, the, so the, the the transhuman kind of virtual reality video game is now it's having real applications and implications, a real impact on our yeah. on, on the real environment by replacing humans with Sims. You know, back I mean, when I was working for yeah. DOE, we had uh, the responsibility for designing training for emergency public information, and at the time, Second Life was in business. Oh, yeah. And we decided oh, to run no. our emergency simulations using Second Life to see how <laughs> uh, emergency public information spread. Oh, man. Yeah, that goes back.
Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was oh, famous man. for a while, that second life. Well, you just the, the, the scale of what Daniel was talking about with the fake accounts on Facebook, CNN business reported in 2019. So for that year, Facebook has shut down 5.4 billion fake accounts this year. That was November 13, 2019. So for, for one year, that's what they did just that year alone. You know, what, what do we got? Seven billion or seven and a half billion actual real humans on the planet, I guess. So 5.4 billion fake ones wow. in one year. Did you see there was another article, too, that was kind of striking to me. Somebody went to dinner at Mark Zuckerberg's mansion and Mark Zuckerberg very proudly served him goat and said, I'm not eating meat anymore that I don't kill myself. And the person related this as if, you know, he was that eccentric. Yeah. And so he talked about how he stabbed the goat and he killed the goat himself. But this kind of makes me nervous. Um, and I might just be paranoid. <laughs> this may be purely paranoia. But as the, the oligarchs are buying up more and more land and they're taking over the food. And the, and the supply yeah, chains like Bill, Bill and, and they're yep. manipulating the food it, like Bill Gates with his synthetic meat that doesn't have any nutrients, uh, but it looks yeah. like meat, the but it doesn't. Meat. Yeah. And so so all of a sudden, it's almost as if Zuckerberg knows that the the meat supply is tainted. It's almost as if he know you know, he's operating in a way that would suggest that. And I, I wanted to, to just segue really quickly. We're drawing, drawing to an end here. But I wanted to in, in the book um, Robes by Penny Kelly. She talks about um, vibrational frequency. She was the one who mentioned trees as kind of natural cell towers that you know can manipulate electromagnetism and stuff. And so um, with a primitive consciousness. But she said something else. She said that plants also vibrate at certain frequencies. And she said that we don't understand that because we're very visual. So we look into microscopes and we see vitamin A in, in, in a particular fruit, say rhubarb, right? You're looking at rhubarb. You're like, oh, look, there's the chemical you know signature for vitamin A. And then let's synthesize this. Let's strip it out and we'll create vitamin vitamin A in a pill. And what she said is that the pill does not resonate with the same harmonics, with the same frequencies as the vitamin A in the plant, that the vitamin A in the plant is hooked up to the earth. It's getting a lot more energy, a lot more frequency. So if you eat it from the plant, it's much more potent than if you strip it out and put it in a pill. And that we don't understand that because once again, we're very visual and we don't listen, right? We don't listen to the harmonics, to the frequencies. And I I was thinking about that. That kind of led me into this weird thought of what if you had an acoustic microscope? Not a visual microscope, but imagine if you you had headphones. Instead of your eyes, you use your ears and you put a piece of rhubarb under, you know, kind of a a sensor or a diaphragm, right? And you can hear the the signature of it. Like, what would that sound like? And then it occurred to me, what I'm describing is a seismograph, right? I'm describing something that you're listening to. Yeah. And, And I was like, at some point, it would be really cool if someone could modify a seismograph and utilize it so that we could see the frequency of, you know, something that had vitamin C relative to the pill of vitamin C and and see, does it have a different harmonic signature? Is it resonating at a different frequency? And this brings us one full circle now, and we're ending with harp. Um, You know, the manipulation of of frequencies. Go ahead. Okay. My first degree is in music and the way, okay, you could have a trumpet and a flute playing the same exact pitch. And the only way your mind and ear can differentiate that one is a trumpet and one is a flute is by the harmonic content. And what happens with waveforms is that the various, especially in a piano waveform, this is really obvious, that the, the various harmonics are not all present at the same time, that they come and go over a period of time. And that with um, your, your ear is capable of distinguishing the first seven harmonics of any, any instrument playing a, a note. 
And and so the, the people think of harmonics as being steady state present and acting like sort of a recipe or a formula or, you know, something that is a sub constituent of a whole. But the fact is that there is a time domain. Uh, for instance, the third partial comes in very strongly in a piano waveform. You know, just as a trumpet can play a B flat and a flute can play it, a piano can play it. And you can tell the difference between all three by the changing harmonic content. Wow, that's actually brilliant. But but this is just to root it back to what Penny Kelly was saying regarding the harmonic signatures of fruits and vegetables that we might be eating. Now, imagine if we ignore all of that. We, we ignore the natural resonant frequencies of the planet or of the plants themselves or of our bodies that are in harmony with these things that we're supposed to be consuming so that they, they heal us, right? It's like medicine that we're, we're eating. Yeah, now, they're like adjuncts. Yeah, so imagine if instead of having meat, I remember reading, uh, Fathers and Sons by Turgenev, uh, you know, the 19th century, and he was a doctor as well as a Russian novelist. And he he explained, and I was reading this as a 19 year old, and he explained why eating meat was actually good for you in the sense that you're getting the meat plus you're getting the vegetables that the animal ate. Okay, so you're getting yeah. you're getting a twofer. Whereas if you're eating Bill Gates's synthetic meat, that that has never eaten anything. That doesn't ha it's not going to have the nutrients of an actual cow that was killed. Likewise, with these new uh, vegetables, I think we we talked about them in another broadcast where they're now creating fake fruits and vegetables from bacteria. So it'll look like a banana, but it's not actually a banana. So uh, I've got an idea then. Why don't we make a grocery store just for transhumans and they can go eat that crap? Yep. They can eat their transhuman they food. Can yeah. <laughs> and so Penny <laughs> Kelly was talking about that, all the sickness from, from us not getting the vitamins and nutrients because we're getting fake food. What were you going to say, Dennis? Yeah. I said that could be a division of Amazon that uh, trans. Yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> trans foods. <laughs> Chapter three. Conclusion. Let's wrap this up. And so I'm going to, I'm going to start with you, Sid. What is your, your final, what are your final words on harp? My final words on harp would be that it's too much power for any corporation or any government to fully wield. I mean, it, they're playing God to this point. And the problem is that go, that government is always subject to corporate interests as well. There's always going to be one person who's willing to take the money. And at that point, it's way too easy for it to be fall into the wrong hands. Okay, so uh, Ginny, go ahead. What's your final conclusion on HARP? Well, I do agree with Sid that it's in the wrong hands already. And it's, it's probably in the wrong hands from the very, almost the very beginning. You know, it started out as pure science, but then it, um, I hate to say it, but as soon as the military got a hold of it, that was basically the end of any pure science. You know, it's science with control, it's the science of control, not the science for pure learning. But I, I guess I'm looking at it kind of like the election. It's it's not who casts the votes. It's who count the, counts the votes. And so it's not who invented the technology. It's who controls the technology. And it's it's time for people to start waking up and realize how how um, dangerous and uh, self canceling it is to willingly participate in so much exposure to all these electromagnetic fields that they've been tempting us with. Okay, so Dennis, what would be your concluding words on the subject of HARP? Well, I want to go ahead and uh, agree 100% with uh, Jenny and, and Sid in this case, um, because it's yet again a, a situation where we have uh, invented fantastic technologies, all kinds of fantastic technologies that 
can, when used appropriately and studied appropriately, be immensely beneficial to everyone. Uh, the, the whole of the human population can benefit. And uh, all too often, these things fall into the hands of people who wish to manipulate them uh, for their own personal reasons that often end up harming many, many other people. And I think HARP is a, a tiny uh, example of that happening within an entire universe of a much larger problem that that is a key component of, uh, that we have to grapple with before we run into really end-stage problems that we can't solve. With that, I wanted to thank our panelists, Jenny, Sid, and Dennis Barrett, and I will see you here next time, Daniel Natal in Under the Iceberg. <laughs>